0: If you, um, when you get to your seats, if you have your Bibles, open with me to the Gospel of Matthew, the ninth chapter this evening. We are going to cover uh, Matthew chapter 9 in its entirety, Uh, but while you guys are turning there, I'm going to pray, ask the Lord's blessing upon our time in his word. Father, we thank you for the sufficiency of your word, Lord, that it is um, a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of our own hearts and our minds, Lord. We pray for cleansing of our hearts, cleansing of our minds. Lord, we pray for anything that would hinder us from fully receiving what you have for us this evening, Lord, that you would remove it, Lord, that there be no distraction, Lord, that there be nothing this evening, Lord, that would distract us from your presence, from your word, Lord, and as your word is given this evening, Lord, and as we Uh, navigate our way through this chapter. We pray that the seed would fall on good soil and bear fruit, Lord. So break up the fallow ground of our hearts, Lord. Um, We want to yield. We want to yield hundredfold, Lord. We want to experience all that uh, is to be found in you, Lord, in a relationship with you. Lord, we pray for forgiveness of sin. Lord, pray that you'd forgive us of the times in our days that we were not mindful of you. Lord, we pray that you would just freshly fill us with your Spirit, Lord. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would illuminate the Word this evening, and that you would uh, put Jesus on great display, and that we would leave here with a greater understanding of your great love for us. So, Lord, teach us this evening. Our ears are open. Our hearts are ready. Um, our minds are will- are willing, Lord, to to obey. So just. Reveal Yourself to us tonight in power, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 9 this evening. If you were here with us last week, you remember what took place at the end of chapter 8 as Jesus and the disciples were making their way from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the next side of the Sea of Galilee, and they find themselves in the middle of a storm. Uh, That Jesus is with them in, but that he's obviously called them to, but Jesus is with them and he's sleeping in the boat. When they arrive to the other side after Jesus completely calms the, the sea with one word, they ask themselves, who then can this be? That even the winds and the sea obey him. They are growing in the knowledge of the deity of Jesus Christ, of his power over creation as they... Land on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, they are met with not one but two demoniacs who are possessed by, by demons. And again, with one word, Jesus causes the demons to flee from these two men. And Jesus, um, they experience Jesus' authority and his power over the devil and his minions. And now, in our text this evening, we are going to see Jesus' deity, his ability to forgive sin and to raise uh, the lame. So let's look at the text this evening in Matthew chapter 9, verse 1. It says, So he got into a boat and crossed over and came to his own city. What we know uh, from studying the parallel accounts is that Je- Jesus' own city was in Capernaum. It was in the region of the Galilee. Uh, when you look at, when, it, when you study the Bible, for you Bible students here, especially in the Gospels, uh, studying the parallel accounts, and what I mean by parallel accounts means oh, the accounts found in other Gospels, um, it adds color, it adds dimension, it gives us more insight to what is taking place. In Matthew's gospel, it just simply says that they got into the boat and they crossed over and they came to his own city. In Mark's account, in Mark chapter 2, in verses 1 and 2, it says he came and he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately, many gathered. Together, so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door, and he preached the word to them. In Luke's account, in Luke chapter 5 and verse 17, it says, Now it happened on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. So Understanding the parallel accounts helps us to, to understand that he is not just in his own city, but he is in a house in his own city, and the house is filled that he is in, and not only the common people, but the religious leaders from the Galilee, from Judea, and as far as Jerusalem, have made their way to hear Jesus teach, listen to what he has to say, and to see who is this man, who is creating such a stir amongst God's people. This is a scene. Capernaum is a small town. It is the the town of the prophet Nahum. It's a small town. The houses were extremely small. The house that Jesus was in was extremely small. And he's in it and he's teaching. He's expounding the truths of the kingdom of God. But what I want to highlight in these next few verses is the faith of these men that, is, that are put before us in verse 2. It says, Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. And at once some of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemed. So again, if we were to read the parallel accounts, if I would take you to Mark, if I would take you to Luke, you would begin to understand that these guys didn't just show up and bring their friend to Jesus. They went to great extents to bring their friend to Jesus. Right? I just told you that, that I tried to do my best to uh, articulate and portray what was taking place in this house, that there was really no room. The other accounts tell us that these men couldn't get to Jesus, they couldn't get their friend to Jesus. So they began to seek other opportunities, um, ulterior routes to get to Jesus. The gospel, other Gospels tell us that they climb up on the roof. They start ripping the tiles off of the roof. They make a hole big enough in the roof to then let down their friend right in front of Jesus. And Jesus sees their faith. Jesus doesn't just see, and I want to highlight this because he's going to see their faith, but he's also going to see uh, the condition of the hearts of the religious leaders. In this we see the deity of Christ. We see his ability to see not just the work, but the motive of the work. They don't just see the, Jesus doesn't just see the action of their faith, the outworking of their faith, but he sees the root of their faith. He sees what's taking place within their hearts and no doubt their hearts, they love their friend. If we could just get this man to Jesus, we know that he then will touch him and has the ability to and will heal him. But notice what Jesus does in this situation. He sees their faith and he says to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. There had to have been a measure of faith in the paralytic. But he just possessed no ability to get himself to Jesus. I want to be like both. I want to be like the, the men who brought their friend to Jesus and didn't just give up on him. They continued to, to seek ulterior routes to just get to Jesus. The, the, the motive of the hearts of his friends were to just get him to Jesus. They didn't give up. They, they didn't just say, oh, well, the house is too packed. We really can't get him there. We must, we, we got to do what we, get, what we can do to get him to the Lord. But notice the, the, the paralytic is just letting himself be led because everything is completely out of his control. But there must have been something within this man that believed in the power of Jesus to heal. Jesus says, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. Now you say, well, that's not why he came, per se. He came to be healed, physically. But as Jesus does, he deals with spiritual healing before physical healing. We don't know why this man was paralyzed. There's many speculations, and I don't think there's value in speculating. Nonetheless, he's in a dire situation. He cannot walk. The Lord doesn't just see his physical malady. He sees his spiritual malady. God used his physical malady to then deal with his spiritual malady so that his sins could be forgiven and he could be made right with God. God is using this. God is using this in his life. God is using his physical malady to reveal a spiritual malady and the Lord deals with it but notice the response of these religious leaders in verse 3 and it says at once some of the scribes said within themselves this man blasphemes but Jesus knowing their thoughts said why do you think evil in your hearts this should have just put put the greatness of who Jesus is on display to those religious leaders. Because it doesn't say that, it says that they said within themselves. And Jesus responds to the question that's taking place within their hearts. He's, he's, He's dealing with the hypocrisy of their heart. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Arise "Arise and walk? Verse 6, But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose and departed. To his house. The physical healing was an opportunity to to display Jesus' power and ability to forgive the spiritual problem. And notice what Jesus says. He says, Arise, take up your bed and go to your house. He doesn't say uh, go to the temple. He says, He says, Go home, go to your own people. And it says in verse eight, "Now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, who had given such power to men." Notice the difference between the multitude and the religious leaders. The religious leaders, the hypocrites, those who went to see Jesus with motives to condemn Him and to judge him, um, didn't, didn't see, nor did they experience, nor did they appreciate the power of God at work in the life of the human. Another individual. They had no compassion. Their religious snobbery didn't enable them to have compassion for this man. They didn't rejoice that this man's sins were forgiven, nor did they rejoice that this man's uh, physical infirmity was healed. They just looked at him with disdain. They looked at Jesus and condemned him. But notice what the common people did. This multitude saw it and they marveled and they glorified God who had given such Power to men and it says in verse 9 and as Jesus passed on from there he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office and he said to him follow me so he arose and followed him this is Matthew this is Matthew's testimony this is the author of the Gospel of Matthew the man who the Holy Spirit inspired to pen the Gospel of Matthew giving his own testimony of his own calling to Christ. This is amazing to me. There had to have been something in Matthew that had seen and heard the works of Jesus. I'm sure because of the location of his tax office, he saw the calling of Peter and James and Andrew and John. He, he heard what Jesus was doing at Peter's mother-in-law's house. He, he saw what he was doing around the Galilee Perhaps Jesus, um, in his paid taxes to Matthew, at some point, commentators believe. Not only did the people hate the tax collectors, why? Because tax collectors were typically Jewish men who were in collusion with the Roman government. And the rule was, is that they could keep whatever they took in excess. So then they would uh, overtax the people so that then they could enrich themselves they were traitors they were hated by the by the Jews and no doubt Matthew is seeing something different in this man and his heart is burning and he wants to no no doubt Matthew wants to be delivered from this this trade that he sold himself into Maybe he's thinking he would never call me. I would never have the privilege to follow in his footsteps. I would never have the privilege of no longer identifying with being a tax collector and someone that society despised and hated to then identifying with Christ himself. But Jesus saw him we, we can't, when, when you're expounding and expositing a text, you have to slow down as you go through a narrative. Or else you miss it. Jesus passed on from there and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. This was the last place that the multitude, that the other disciples would have thought Jesus would have went to call a disciple who would then become an apostle and a leader in the early church. And it's so typical of our Lord to go to the least likely and pull him or her out of something and make him something great in the kingdom. Jesus saw him. What everyone else saw was a traitor. What everybody else saw was someone who sold out to the oppressor. He was someone that everyone hated, but Jesus saw something in him. God saw in him, Jesus saw in him, the God-ordained calling that was placed upon Matthew's life before he was formed in the mother's womb. And God so, so... aptly placed him in that role as a tax collector and uses it as an opportunity to teach multiple lessons on the heart and the character of God God does not see as man sees for man looks at the outward appearance but the Lord looks at the heart the Lord was able to see beyond everything that a tax collector was Jesus was was able to see beyond the prestige, beyond the hypocrisy, beyond the betrayal, beyond the hurt, beyond the overtaxation, and he saw the man. And he saw beyond the man, he saw the heart of a man. And no doubt in Matthew, the tax collector, he saw someone whose heart was burning to follow him. So he says, come on. He says, follow me. This word follow me is an interesting word. It means to walk the same road as me. So he arose and he followed him. He, he casts off what he was and now he is following Jesus. Up until this point, Jesus had called men who didn't have any, any contention with society at this point. It was just the fishermen. It was Nathanael. There was no tax collectors. There was no outright quote-unquote, sinners that he called into his fold until now. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened, verse 10, as Jesus sat at the table in the house, the other gospels tell us this is Matthew's house. Other gospels refer to him as Matthew, Matthew Levi or Levi. They're in his house. Jesus is now in a tax collector's house. That behold many tax collectors. And see what Jesus is doing. He's breaking the mold of the Jewish mind. He is seeking inroads to get to the hearts of the people who are the outcasts of other people. Jesus didn't just come to, to meet the people that he identified with. He came to meet the needs of the people who nobody identified with. And Jesus calls this man, Matthew. Matthew then opens his house and Jesus would then know that to go into Matthew's house would provide him a greater opportunity to reach the hearts of more tax collectors. Jesus is so wise. If I reach this man, this man can reach these guys, then I could speak to the hearts of all of them. Jesus was no respecter of persons. Jesus was after the hearts of men. It says again in verse 10, it says, Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the, t- in the house that behold many tax collectors and sinners. We don't know what kind of sinners these were. It just tells us they were sinners. I mean, I mean you, use your own imagination of what, what the Gospels usually put before us as sinners. Were they, were they harlots? Were they, were they prostitutes? Were they, were they evil men? We, we don't know. The Bible just says they are sinners. And they came and sat down with, his, with him and his disciples. No doubt the disciples at this point are saying, what, the, what, what is happening? You know, sometimes the Lord does that when we follow him. He, follow, he, he puts us in uncomfortable situations. I have learned, as I've, I've sought to be a servant of the Lord, to get comfortable being uncomfortable because nothing he has called me to do has ever been comfortable. This, this is uncomfortable for me. But he's teaching his disciples look guys you get you got to get uncomfortable you got to be willing to get uncomfortable if you want to reach the hearts of people if you want to be about my business if you want to be about kingdom work you got to get beyond yourself and go and be willing to converse with the people that are misunderstood because they're still people and their, their hearts are still far from me so his disciples are sitting in the house of a tax collector. No, no doubt these disciples probably hated this, these men because they grew up, their parents grew up being oppressed by them. As they grew up and went to work, they ended up being oppressed by them. There's this generational oppression by these tax collectors and now the call of God has brought them to the table with tax collectors. Amazing to me. When you follow Jesus... Your path crosses with people that your path would have never crossed with outside of Christ. Most of my dearest and closest friends in the ministry, in this building, and in other countries, our our paths would have never crossed outside of just simply following Jesus. It says in verse 11, And when the Pharisees saw it, there's always this, remember, all these Pharisees and religious leaders are still there. They're always there to scrutinize. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? These Pharisees are so typical of people who look at the work of God and judge the work of God. They don't don't go to the leader himself. No, that would take too much courage and boldness. They They go to the other people and make their complaints. Jesus already knew their hearts, but they go to the disciples Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? This would then make the this would give the disciples an opportunity to be cowards. This would give the disciples an opportunity to shrink back of like, oh, I don't, I don't know. You should ask him. Maybe they denied him in this moment. We don't know. But they were, they were given an opportunity to stand for their king. They were given an opportunity to stand for their Lord. They were given an opportunity to proclaim the mission that they were on because of the calling on their life. But notice, Jesus he's always one step ahead. Verse 12. When Jesus heard that, Jesus is listening. When Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. Jesus isn't saying these tax collectors and these sinners are sick. They're just the ones who know they're sick. You righteous hypocritical Pharisees, you're just as sick as them. In Matthew chapter 23, he's going to tell them, you're hypocrites, you're full of dead man's bones, outside your whitewashed t- tombs, but inside you're full of all kinds of filth and wickedness. You cleanse the outside of the cup, but on the inside you're full of all types of filth. So the tax collectors and the sinners, the ones that Jesus is eating with and partaking in fellowship with, and understand the culture, to eat with someone, in that culture they believed that you were actually becoming one with that person. They didn't have any forks and knives and utensils. You would break off the same piece of bread and you would dip in the same, same vinegar and there was no rule against double dipping back then. They just all ate together and partook of the same thing. And so they really believe you are becoming one. So what Jesus is essentially doing in their eyes is he's becoming one with these tax collectors and these sinners. But again, the only difference between the tax collectors and the sinners is they knew they were tax collectors and sinners. They weren't trying to hide it. The, the Pharisees, these, the, these religious hypocrites, didn't live in the light of who they really were before the Lord. And so what Jesus is giving these guys an opportunity to acknowledge is we are just as spiritually sick as they are our sin just doesn't look as bad i'd rather live in the light of of who i really am than walk in pretense pretense is a horrible sin you know what pretense is pretense is putting on or putting out to other people something that you're actually not you're not real That's the Pharisees. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But notice what he tells them. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. I love this verse. This is in in verse 13. This is a... um, jesus is referring here to hosea 6 and verse 6 and micah 6 verses 6 through 8 what does the lord require of you O man but to do justly love mercy and to walk humbly with your god and you're here tonight lord what what do you desire of me i desire mercy and not sacrifice the bible says that the lord delights in those who hope in his mercy you will be so quick to extend mercy to others when you are aware of God's mercy and the power of His mercy upon your life. What is mercy? Mercy is not, not giving you what you deserve. When you're aware and you're so well acquainted with His mercy and you're ho- you've messed up and, and, and you know that you deserve to be spanked and you know that you deserve to be cast into the deepest pit and the Lord spares you, that's His mercy. And the Bible says that the Lord takes pleasure in those who hope in his mercy. But he also wants us to learn to show mercy to others. You think I want you to be sacrificial. You think I want you to pray more. You think I want you to fast more. You think I want you to serve more. No, that's not what I want. I want you to experience my mercy and display my mercy to others. I don't want your sacrifice. I want you to be merciful. I didn't come to call the righteous but the sinners to repentance. Verse 14, then the disciples of John, this is John the Baptist, came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus is going to reveal to us not the act of fasting in this text. He's going to reveal to us the heart of fasting in this text. Right, remember in, in the Sermon on the Mount, when we were going through chapter 6, Jesus didn't say, if you fast. He said, when you fast. Fasting should be a, a, uh, a reality in our relationship with the Lord. And they fasted often, but Jesus is revealing the heart of a fast. He says in verse 15, he says, And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them. But the day will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and they will fast. What Jesus is saying here is that I am the bridegroom, my church is the bride. There's no reason for them to fast now because I am with them. But when I go away they will then fast. What is what does fasting do? Fasting is a denial of the flesh to focus on the spirit. It's a denial of the flesh to focus on the spirit. It's it's seeking the Lord with a measure of intensity. Jesus was present with them. Why fast? He's here. He says in verse 16, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away, From the garment and the tear is made worse nor do they put new wine into old wine skins or else the wine skins break and the wine is spilled and the wine skins are ruined but they put new wine into new wine skins notice and both are preserved i love how the lord answers this question Um, With this illustration of the wineskins, Jesus explained that he did not come to... What he's essentially seeking to put before them is that he didn't come to reform or to repair uh, the old institution of Judaism. But to institute a new covenant altogether. The new covenant doesn't just repair the old like the patch on the garment or... The, the new wine in an old wineskin, but it replaces it, notice, and it, and it also goes beyond it. Jesus' reference to the wineskins was his announcement that the present institution of Judaism could not and was not able to contain this new wine that he's referring to. He would do away with the old covenant, create the new covenant, and create a new institution. What is what? It's the church. The rigidness of the old way of Judaism couldn't hold new wine. This new way would bring Jew and Gentile together. You've heard this exhortation from people. Don't be an old wineskin. What are they saying? Don't get so caught up in the old that you're not open to a new work of the Holy Spirit within your life. And sometimes we can do that. Sometimes we can be that way. Not in our own lives, but also how we examine the work of the Holy Spirit in, in other people's lives. We don't want to be this way. We want, to be, we want to be soft and we want to be pliable. We want to be malleable to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And sometimes we, as we grow with the Lord, the Lord will stretch you and the Lord will show you areas of your life that you are becoming rigid in. And he says, I, I just be open. I know I've, I've worked this way in your life in the past, but now I want to work this way. The worst thing you can do in your walk with the Lord is to get stuck in a rut. Because what does a rut do? It just takes you where it wants to take you. You've got to learn how to get out of the rut and be, be able to be open to wherever the Holy Spirit would like to lead you. And you may be stuck in, in your walk, your relationship with the Lord right now because you're like Peter in Acts chapter 10 when the Lord gives him the vision of, of this sheet and it comes down three times and has all these animals that the Judea, the Judaic law wouldn't allow him to partake of and he says not so Lord. Sometimes we are there in our walks with the Lord. The Lord's showing us something. He wants to do a new work in our life. He wants to take some step of faith we don't completely understand and we're, we're here saying not so Lord. You, those those two words cannot go together. You, can, you cannot Say not so and Lord in the same sentence. But the Lord is so gracious in the life of Peter, and the Lord will be gracious in your life. He may be wanting to do a new work in your life, and he may be showing you things about you that are not pleasing to him because he's preparing you for the new work. And trust, when God is preparing one and he's also preparing the other, but he's got to ensure that the heart of his child is soft enough, that the heart is open enough for a new work of the Holy Spirit in his or her life. That's what the Lord is seeking to teach them. Don't be an old wineskin, all dried up, can't contain new wine or else you break. We want to be open. We want to let the Lord use our lives. Verse 18, it says, while he spoke these things to them, I always come to this portion of Scripture with a great deal of reverence. I, I, I don't know why, because I should with all Scripture, as I do, but uh, the Lord has revealed just so much to me about his heart through this portion of Scripture in verses 8 through 26. We find this elsewhere throughout the Gospels and... Well, let's get into it. It says, While he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshiped him. Um, other Gospels tell us this man's name is Jairus. Other gospels tell us that this ruler fell on his face and worshipped him. What is a ruler doing worshipping at the feet of of a carpenter? The thing that was nearest to this ruler's heart, his name is Jairus, the, the thing that was nearest to his heart was now in great jeopardy. I hate to say it this way, but it's true. Jesus was his last resort. Again, there was a measure of faith in, in Jairus because he believed in Jesus' ability and willingness to heal. But the Lord is going to take him through this process. There's this amazing contrast that's going to be, going to happen in this text right now. Jairus' daughter is 12 years old. And there's going to be a woman with an issue of blood who's had this issue of blood for 12 years so at this at one point Jairus is his wife they're experiencing this joy they're having this baby girl a little girl has entered into this world and back then they didn't have ultrasounds they didn't know what they were going to have but this girl enters into this world and there's so much joy and there's so much happiness there's so much rejoicing and the love of a father for a daughter I believe it can't be outweighed people ask me do I want a son no I don't want a son because then I can't love him properly because I know I love my daughters more you know what I'm saying? I can't, I can't love a son properly. I already know that. That's why the Lord hasn't given me one. Anyways, he loves this, this, this little girl. And for 12 years, he's experiencing all this mi- these milestones with her. Her, her. The way she walks and the way in, in her first steps and her first words and her first food. And she is the, the joy of his life. And at that same moment, another woman in the same town is met with this terrible illness that then be- begins to destroy her life. The text is going to tell us as we, as we move on that she spent all her money on physicians and they could not heal her. So for 12 years, Jairus and his wife, his family, are experiencing this joy. And for 12 years, on another side of town, this woman is experiencing uh, just this 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 debilitating illness that doesn't just debilitate her physically, but causes her to be an outcast of society. In the Judaic law, she couldn't worship in the temple; she couldn't be around people because she was unclean. Verse eighteen, it says, "While he spoke these things to them, behold." A ruler came and he worshipped him. I think this was pleasing to the heart of God. That he worshipped before he requested. He worshipped him saying, My daughter has just died. Notice the finality of this. The other gospel account says that Jesus call, that Jairus calls him to follow. And Jesus says, yeah, we'll go. Let's go to your house. And it says that the multitudes thronged him. And no doubt there's this anxiety in Jairus' heart as he's just trying to get home. But the, the multitudes, it's like trying to get, get to wherever you're going on the 210 freeway these days. It's like, I just want to get to where I'm going, but I can't. The same thing was how ha- the Jairus's heart my daughter's dying don't you understand we, we got to get there I got to him first everyone else get out of the way Let, let's go but then the parallel accounts tell us that another man from Jairus's house came and said don't trouble the teacher for your daughter is dead it goes on to say in verse 19 so Jesus arose and followed him so did his disciples And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, if only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. There, there's, a, there's a lesson in this chapter from, from the beginning of chapter 9 up until this point. The desperation of people to get to Jesus. Remember the, the people with the paralytic friend. Like I, I, Whatever I got to do to get them to Jesus and Jesus meets the need. Jairus falls at at his feet and, and he worships him and Jesus is going to meet his need. This woman is saying she's putting everything on the line. I know because I'm going into a crowd, if he does not touch me, I will be excommunicated from society forever. Because if I touch all these people when I'm pushing through this crowd and they know that I have this infirmity and that I've had for 12 years, not only am I unclean, but anyone else who I touch will then be unclean and they will be unable to worship. She's putting everything on the line right now. If, she, if the Lord doesn't heal her, there's going to be a great deal of problems. She said, if I could only, if I can only touch his garment. If I could just touch the, the hem of his garment. But Jesus turned around. I, I, I like the other gospel account. It says, who touched me? And Jesus, and Peter says, how can you say who touched you? Don't you know all these people throng about you? He says, who touched me? For I felt power go from me. The power of touching Jesus. She lived for 12 years like this. And she heard Jesus was coming. She wasn't going to let this opportunity pass her by. But do you realize we have this opportunity every day? Maybe you've been living with some condition within your heart that is is causing you to to be downcast and discouraged. You have an opportunity to, to apprehend him daily. The Bible says, Jesus says, I am with you, you always. But there's this intensity in the heart of this woman and Jesus acknowledges it and he says, be of good cheer. Notice this, daughter. She has not heard a term of endearment like this in 12 years. You're a daughter of, of, of mine. You're not out of society, what he's saying. You're, you're in. You're not, you're, not out, you're not an outcast any longer. You're in. You're, you're a daughter of the living God. Be of good cheer, daughter. Notice, your faith has made you well. Notice the great emphasis that is uh, placed upon faith in this chapter. Your faith has made you well. What, it, what is the condition of your faith here this evening? That is the most important, I don't want to call it a thing, but it is the most important thing about you, the condition of your faith. And Jesus goes to great lengths to perfect your faith, 1 Peter 1. Your faith is much more precious than gold that perishes. Therefore, he allows you to be grieved by various trials. He allows you to be put in the fire so the impurities can be uh, melted away. And he heats it up so more impurity can rise to the surface and then he scrapes it away. He allows you to, to to be filed the sharp edges off of you so that your faith can be made beautiful. The Bible says that we overcome this world by our faith. That without faith, it it is impossible to please God. For faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Luke 18, Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find the faith on this earth? The Bible says that we walk by faith and not by sight. The Bible says that the just shall live by faith. To what degree of attention do you give your faith? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Are you in faith? The word daily, are you seeking to grow? Are you investing in your relationship with God so that your faith can grow thereby? Because without the shield of faith, you're never going to be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. But it was her faith that made her well. And it was her faith that inspired her action. She acted upon her faith. And she, there was just some point of release of her faith that said, if I touch him, I'll be made well. For me, this is my, uh, like my time alone with the morning. In the morning, if I could just get to him in the morning, I know I will be made well throughout that day. And it's different for each person. Daily, something going on in your life, there's an opportunity for your faith to be released within your relationship with the Lord. Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour Verse 23, when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing, he said to them, make room for the girl is not dead, but she is sleeping. And in this day, the custom was it still is today. When someone dies in Israel, they bury the same day. And oftentimes they, they hire these mourners and they wail and they scream and they cry and And if you've ever been to Israel during a a funeral, even today, it is a scene. Because it's a way for them to pay respect to this person. And Jesus addresses them, and and he walks into this scene, and she is clearly dead. And he says, make room for this girl, is not dead, but is sleeping. Notice, and they ridiculed him. But when the crowd was put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose, and the report of this went out to all the land. I love what the other go- one of the other gospels says, that he, he, uh, he got her up and he said, make her something to eat. He brought Peter, James, and John in with him. Make room, for this girl is not dead, but sleeping. Notice how different Jesus sees. Jesus can make things that seem dead. Jesus can make things that are actually dead in our life come back to life. I was challenged by this this week in my study of this chapter. Because there there, there are many burdens and desires in my heart that the Lord has given me to, to serve Him and capacities and vision and promises in His Word that I have just considered as dead. And the Lord spoke to my heart this week, and they're not dead. They're sleeping. But when I come and I touch this situation in your life, all people will glorify me. We need to learn to see with the eyes of Christ. That God is able, He is willing to touch those areas of our life that seem dead. And to bring life to them again. That He would be glorified. Sometimes He allows things to get to that place where it's completely gone. There is no way that this is ever going to be resurrected outside of divine intervention. right? This was the life of Abraham. Abraham, here I am, Lord. Genesis 22. Take now your only son, your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the mountain that I will show you and sacrifice him to me. And what does Abraham do? He goes and he takes the knife and he takes the wood and he places Isaac on the altar and he was willing to kill him. Because he believed the promise of God that the promise lay in Isaac and that God was able to raise him from the dead if he would put that knife through him. That's perfect faith. That can surrender a promise to the Lord put the promise on the altar allow it to be completely consumed before your eyes and still believe that the Lord is able that he's able to raise it up. It says again in verse 25, but when the crowd was put out, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose, and the report went out of this, went out into all the land. When Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, saying, "Son of David, have mercy on us. This is them acknowledging. That he is, in fact, the king of the Jews. Son of David, have mercy on us. Notice they didn't care. They didn't care what other people thought about them. They were blind. They were in dire straits. They didn't care what the religious leaders said about him. They knew who he was, that he was the king of the Jews. He said, when he had come into the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were open. and Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See that no one knows it. But when they had departed, they spread the news about him to all the country. Jesus didn't want the notoriety that came from his miracles. But imagine these these men. The first face you see is the face of the Son of God. According to your faith... Let it be done to you. Sometimes when we pray, let's be honest with ourselves. We're, we're getting ready to wrap this study up. Sometimes we pray, but if we're honest with ourselves, we don't pray in faith. We don't pray in faith. We pray because we pray and we ask the Lord, but, but are you praying in faith? Do you actually, let me, let me ask you, let me put it this way. Do you believe that God is willing and he is able to answer your prayer and to act on your behalf. That's the question. It's not the prayer, it's the prayer of faith. Do you acknowledge who he is that is able? Do you know his heart enough to say if he is willing? The, these, these blind men knew who he was. This is the son of David. This is the Messiah. This is the king of the Jews. Do you believe? And maybe that is what the Lord is asking you here this evening. Do you believe that I am able to do this? Notice Jesus doesn't just answer them directly. He he draws this out of them. He says, you're coming to me. You want me to do this for you? But I want to know if you actually believe this. And they said, we do. And he said, according to your faith, let it be done to you. Seek him in faith. Obviously, you know, in this church, our doctrine's good. We don't believe it, name it, claim it, health, wealth, prosperity doctrine. But we do believe that the Lord responds to faith. We do believe that the Lord is able and he is willing. The Bible says that the effective and fervent prayers of a righteous man avail much that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, but he prayed. And he prayed faithfully, and he prayed fervently, and the Lord responded, let us be that way. But I ask you, the paralytic man, the Lord saw their faith. The woman with the issue of blood, the Lord saw her faith. These two blind men, the Lord saw their faith. And I, and I close with this question, what is the condition of your faith this evening? And I don't say that to condemn you, because the Lord would love nothing more in your life than to partner with you and to partake in this work of increasing your faith it'd be easy for me to say you need to have more faith but if you're not pursuing uh, this growth in faith in, in the, within the biblical means you're never gonna grow in your faith and you're never gonna see answer to prayer you are never ex- experience the power of God in your life because you're not giving attention to the growth and the production of faith by partaking in a relationship with Him and seeking him, seeking him through His Word. He wants to grow you, but you have to want to as well. And you have to present to Him what is pleasing to Him and that is, that is your faith, and even the willingness to acknowledge your lack of faith. And He will act on your behalf. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word this evening. Thank You for this chapter. Thank You for the work of Your Spirit. Thank you for the application of your word to our lives. Pray, Father, for those things, those truths that you have spoken to us here this evening, Lord. That when we leave here this night, that they would not be snatched away, Lord, but that they would be, that they would take root. Lord, help us to see the dangers that lie ahead of us. The cares of this life, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things, that Choke out the word. Help us to see that there is a very real reality, a satanic reality that is around us trying to snatch the word out of our hearts through unbelief. So protect us, Lord. Protect our minds from being distracted. Protect our hearts from being discouraged. In Jesus' name, amen.